Hey, kid. I'm going to ask you to do something. It's, it's a little something anybody ought to be able to do. Now, if you can do it, fine. We'll forget this whole thing. But if you can't, we'll think about getting you to see somebody fast. Is it a deal? Name it. Make Fat shut up for five minutes. Five minutes? I can make him shut up for five years. Hey, everybody. Welcome back to Uncanny Cinema. I'm here with a new roundtable of guests, a couple people who have been on some previous episodes and a newbie. Uh, we've got a couple of uh, horror junkies here. One of them is Eric. Hello. And another one is Tim. What is up? And our new challenger, Nate, is joining us here today. What's up? So I mentioned that this is, uh, we're leaning into horror for this one. So this is Magic. It is a 1978 kind of thriller horror with aspects of melodrama. It stars Anthony Hopkins, Anne Margaret, and Burgess Meredith. And this will be our first Halloween episode. Our first episode for the month of October. We'll be doing five episodes in total. This will kick everything off. We are recording this in advance. So right now we are at the tail end of July. So hopefully the world still exists come uh, October 1st or whenever this actually gets launched. But uh, that's where we're at. Shouldn't really be an issue, though, for this film because uh, it's very much a product of its time. But we will be looking at it through that kind of October Halloween spookening lens. So Magic 1978, directed by Richard Attenborough. Opening thoughts. What do we got? I didn't realize Anthony Hopkins was a young man once. <laughs> well, he's only he's only barely young. He's like 39 or 40. He's 41. He's 41. So, yeah, barely young. But my, my conception of Anthony Hopkins started with Silence of the Lambs. <laughs> well, so most people did, yeah. I, right. I just never thought of him being younger than that. So that was the first surprise with this movie for me was... Oh shit! Why well, I, I uh, he's a person. I, I saw this movie. Uh, I saw this years ago. The reason I saw it was because Science of the Lambs, because I got very much into the books and the films in high school, and so I was seeking out other things that Hopkins had done. And I remember this one being like a on a VHS copy, being in my like mom and pop video store. It had a really striking cover of the, the fats, the dummy fats. Uh, the basic plot of this movie is that Anthony Hopkins is a ventriloquist slash magician, and he's also suffering with some mental issues throughout. Uh, that's kind of the crux as we start going. But it had the dummy facts, fats on the box, and it was just a really striking cover. But to what you're saying, Tim, I was looking it up because I was curious. I think, Eric, you had mentioned to me like that you you didn't know of any like early Anthony Hopkins movies really at all. So, no, no, yeah. When you said that, I was like, oh, I don't think I've ever seen anything where he wasn't like a gray haired. <laughs> so it made me yeah. it made me check to see how old he was when he made this. And you guys, you're saying it was 41. I thought he was 41. Okay, this was, yeah. So when he had moved to America to start okay. being in film. So so 41. But what's interesting is there Burgess Meredith play is you know it, who's also always old, also also always an old man. <laughs> 
but he plays you know a pretty old character i don't know how old he would have been at this point probably in his 60s uh or late 50s but he refers to anthony Hopkins' character corky as like young man several times when kid 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 kid, that's what it was and which stood out to me but i will say Hopkins does have a very kind of like youthful boyish face. So, I mean, even though he's like about 40 here, like he could convincingly be 30 as far as the plot goes. I, I think he, you know, looked- I, I would agree. Um, I will say that as far as this movie reminded me, and this is kind of a weird call, a call to this one, but mazes and monsters, Tom Hanks, when he's young, it just had that feeling of just before they really knew what they were doing with acting. It seemed like not that he was bad or anything in this, Anthony Hopkins. But it was the same sort of feeling where you see Tom Hanks in a movie when he's really young, and you're like, "Whoa, that just doesn't fit well." That's mm. that's one I've never seen. I don't I don't think I've ever heard of that one. Is it like a TV oh, thing or something? It was a I think probably made for made for TV. Basically, a, a full movie of warning you against Dungeons and Dragons and the demonic okay. things that it will do. Okay. To you. <laughs> there was a poster for it that went viral at some point because I I've never seen it, but I remember seeing some like maybe some weird cracked article at some point brought it up so is that like before big i would assume oh it was the first thing he was ever in okay because because i've seen bosom buddies which i think is his first film like it's it's not good but i but i'm so i've seen very young tom hanks but yeah that's even predates that i yeah i'm unaware (laughs) he's playing a high school kid in that in this one yeah so it is it was one of those things and it was one of those one of the things I found with Anthony Hopkins in this was just like the over exaggeration of emotion. It felt the same sort of acting style, and maybe it's a, a product of its time, but it was that sort of thing that felt like young and not necessarily figuring out what they're doing, what their calling is in, 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 in film yet. Well, to be fair, Anthony Hopkins has always been pretty scenery chewing, so I think he had it figured out. I don't think there was this. Uh, yeah, was some yeah, kind he was, of- yeah, he had been. British theater for a while at that point I think I mean yeah it, it could have been the director like wanting big emotion out of him which usually is the case like in older movies I wouldn't say necessarily late 70s but you know it probably could have been still at that point where directors just wanted you to like go for it um, we don't know if he, he wanted to be more understated or not but he, he certainly does have an expressive face which definitely helps with the character I think yeah I uh I mean I I own this movie it's been years since I watched it though and I think all of you are coming to it new so 100% cold yeah so I mean I I enjoy it well I mean we'll definitely get more into the particulars of it as we go I enjoy it I guess I don't view it as him being over the top he's definitely manic at times especially as it goes he definitely goes big but yeah, I, I think his performance works. I, I think his performance is what makes me interested in it. If, if this had been a movie with a lot of other actors, I wouldn't be as, I wouldn't find it as enjoyable, but I like seeing Anthony Hopkins in a horror role this early on in his hmm. career. I mean, it's very different from how he plays Lecter. There's, there's some, yes. there's some yeah. crossover yeah. in like facial expressions and creepiness and that kind of stuff. But Lecter yeah. is obviously very controlled. I think that's kind of it's just his face, though. There's always just this like hint of menace <laughs> behind his face, no matter what he's doing. That's yeah. I was thinking about all the roles he's had, where like he never quite plays that like avuncular kind of nice, except for, like Hearts in Atlantis or something like that. But even then, there's moments where it's just like there's something to this guy. I just don't 
know like yeah it, it, so maybe that's just the way he always looks that yeah, like... I, well i think I, I wouldn't say that he always plays sinister parts he definitely has played a number of villains but yeah i, I would say he plays a lot of characters with mystique and mystery there's something unusual about a lot of the characters he plays i, I would agree with that i mean even hearts and atlantis which i'm sure we'll talk about down the line because i think that's a good film even in that one he's a guy with magical powers so he's not, yeah you he's not normal tim you had something i think uh before we start talking about that i was just going to say it, there's a similar energy to this as there was with hannibal lecter you know there is that kind of menace i think that's a good word for yeah. it but with uh, someone else mentioned control hannibal lecter very controlled very confident he's reading the room he knows exactly what's going on where quirky is the defining character i think even more so than manic the defining characteristic for him is insecure mm-hmm. and hopkins does a really good job of translating a lot of the things he might do in other roles but translating that through the lens of just abject insecurity like if anthony hopkins was donald trump corky would be the result Tim, mm-hmm. Tim ends up comparing a lot of characters in movies we watch to Donald Trump. Uh, he did that on a different podcast that we watched. I mean, I kind of felt like Fats was more of a Donald Trump, but okay, I'll give you, I'll give you that. The, uh, the insecurity is an interesting point because I've watched a number of interviews with Hopkins because I think he's a phenomenal actor and he's just always worth watching. Even in interviews, he's fun and entertaining. But I remember he was like on something for Larry King and he talked about insecurity that like that i think i think that was the word he used of him having that as as established as he is as phenomenal as an actor and as he's won at least one oscar if not more and you know countless other awards baftas and things like that had yeah he's a knight for his (laughs) acting ability uh he's revered the world over i mean he's just a phenomenal actor but yeah he i think he spoke about having just kind of some deep sea i think he may have been talking about it in reference to when he played nixon that he mm. when he played nixon he was playing a very insecure man and that hopkins said he he knew what that felt like that he could tap into that part of him like not just in a kind of abstract oh i i could do that more of a like no i know that and so he went heavy into that when he played nixon but yeah it's interesting because i could definitely see that at play here with corky's character yeah, actually, well, one thing I discovered when I was, like, reading about him after this movie was that he is diagnosed as, like, high-end autistic. Okay. Oh, I didn't know that. Yeah, which I think ties in, because one thing they talked about was his acting style, which he over-prepares for his lines, yeah. like, obsessively, to where it just sounds like he doesn't even, like, think about it. He'll read a script, like, 200 times. Yeah, like, so... He's so that kind of like it makes sense because he's like obsessively memorizing his lines to where you know to where it, and sometimes it like pisses off directors because it, they might want to go off script or like some actors like want to do rehearsals in different ways but it, I mean yeah it kind of makes sense and so yeah like when you think about kind of harnessing insecurity to come out in these characters yeah and this we talked a little bit about where this falls in his career but for a little bit more of context for those of you who haven't dug much into anthony hopkins early career and only know him as an old old man as uh, eric and tim and nate i think 
he uh if you look at his filmography he has a handful of movies before this but he had been in british theater for a good bit and the movies before this i mean i've i've gone back into his filmography and i've watched a number of these he did a number of tv movies i think one one he plays hitler but that might have been around 1980 another one he plays the Lindbergh kidnapper the Lindbergh baby kidnapper he was in a movie called the lion in winter which was an adaptation of a stage play and that was kind of his first major film role and he was in a few more film roles prior to magic but i was looking at and comparing what he was in and this was i believe the first thing first major thing he was in where he was the focus that was released by an american distributor so he was in a number of british productions so i'm wondering if this might have been the first thing American audiences might have actually seen him in because a lot of the other things would have been seen by if if at all seen by British audiences maybe if you're going to like kind of an independent theater it may have gotten some crossover into some art house theaters in the states but I'm thinking that this you know just similar to maybe like kind of a Christoph Waltz would be a modern example where the first time mm -hmm. people saw Christoph Waltz basically was in Glorious Bastards and before that he had been in a bunch of German stuff over the years but unless you were digging heavy into that, you wouldn't have been seeing it. So yeah, I think this is probably the first thing that put Hopkins on Americans' radar. Makes sense, because I have never heard of any of those other movies. You could have made all of those up, and I would not have been able to call you out. I'd heard of, I'd heard of Lion Winter. Lion but... Winter is quite good. Yeah, I, that's one that's been on my list. And I think the only one that I had heard of prior to this was a bridge too far yeah i've seen that one also in that one that one american audiences may have seen because it was this big world war ii movie and it had like yeah. gene hackman and hopkins and michael Caine and pretty much any major male actor of the day mm -hmm. uh, i mean i guess hopkins wasn't a major one but tons of tons of big actors and i saw it years ago and it's enjoyable enough but i think his part is pretty small bringing it back to magic yeah you know, we're talking about hopkins I think it's good that he's the focus of this movie because he is what is holding this together. Oh, absolutely. I, absolutely. This movie is just absolutely ridiculous. Like the story <laughs> is, I, so I went into this very cold and I'm glad that I did. All I knew was you had wanted to do this for the podcast. So it's not a super well-known movie. And you said it was a horror thriller and it's called magic. So I'm like, who the fuck knows? So I go into this not knowing anything and just the tonal whiplash at points. I was just thinking, like, I don't know what the fuck this movie is going through. It is like such a really, if you just write it on paper, the plot of the movie is bizarre and could very easily have been kind of almost a lifetime movie-esque. But goddamn, does Anthony Hopkins just commit to everything like and both in terms of when we actually see him on screen because obviously he you know he's an actor that goes big or goes home so his facial expressions and his mannerism and everything is just great and then when he's doing the voice of fats the night of the living dummy in this movie it like without anthony hopkins this movie would just be utterly insane in a bad way 
I, I guess so I, 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 guess I, I wanted to talk about Anthony. I, 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 I want you to jump in, Nate. I guess I would say I, I don't feel that the movie's bizarre. I don't feel it takes a ton of weird turns. I do think Hopkins, Hopkins holds it together. I think without Hopkins, this movie would be boring. Because I think there are right. stretches of this movie where, even though I own it, I haven't watched it in years, Rewatching, I was like, yeah, some of this is taking a while here, guys. But when I, when I, when I say insane, to, to clarify, I don't mean insane in the sense of like, oh my God, there's another bizarre turn out of left field, mm-hmm. but insane in that this is a story that people are spending money to commit to film. Because like you said, it's very boring. It's very, essentially what it is, is a crazy person stalking a crush from high school. That's, and, and he, and then you have the added wrinkle of, oh, and he thinks that his dummy is real. Like he's a crazy ventriloquist dummy stalking his crush from high school. Like that's the plot. Mm-hmm. And it's, it feels more like something that I would listen to on some kind of horror podcast with like, you know, the No Sleep podcast or something, some weird short story kind of thing, not a full-fledged motion picture starring, and obviously he wasn't necessarily at this point at this point in time, but, a, you know, a major motion picture starring one of the greatest actors that we've ever seen. Mm-hmm. Nate, what you got? Well, I was going to say it, it was when you were talking about voicing fats and, and this is kind of going back a little bit. I, I was wondering, do you think he learned ventriloquism for some of this or if we're obviously all done in post where, you know, he's just holding his mouth shut and then and then speaking lines so after he, the fact? He did. I was reading up some of the background on it. So he did learn magic for this, like like mm-hmm. card tricks and things like that. So I think what you see in the film where he's doing sleight of hand and different card tricks, I think that's legit. Um, it also stated that he learned how to throw his voice. It didn't say how extensive he did ventriloquism. So I don't know, you know, if he got to a level, cause you have some of these actors like, uh, Meryl Streep, like learn violin for some part once. So I don't know if he like got to a point where he was like fluent as a ventriloquist, like could do it on stage, but he did learn it. And you, when you watch the movie, Fats is talking and in most of the scenes when he's with Fats, the dummy, you see, because if you see ventriloquists like on stage and stuff, yeah, you, can the see, throat. you can see their throat move. And you see that in most of his scenes. Like sometimes it wasn't happening. And mm-hmm. a lot of the times it was. My guess is he probably performed it or kind of mouthed it on set to just keep his own dialogue going. But they almost mm-hmm. certainly dubbed everything oh, yeah, didn't post. Post, yeah. so but i i'm guessing that he probably did it for real on set probably just to keep his own you know sense of where the lines were since he was talking to himself right. in so many scenes uh i i kind of going back to where you were where you what you were talking about before but i, I felt it was when you're saying when you were saying it was insane of a movie i agree to a point where it felt like we had some major jumps in time where we're like yeah. oh okay there's like a year's gone by and then five, six months have gone by and it's like, whoa, we didn't really have much of a transition <laughs> or it, it's just mentioned in passing. Yeah. It's been, I spent a year crafting my crafting this new act. And then it's like, whoa, you, you have this like shock of this is a way different time now. And he's much further along. And it, it was, it, I know we, 
it, it just was weird to me just mm-hmm. how quickly they would jump from time to time to time. Because I think we went through almost a year and a half in the first 15 minutes of the movie. Yeah, we're used to that that montage where he's practicing with the dummy. We need to know how he got that good. <laughs> uh, we're at an 80s montage level, yeah. yeah. So yeah, so for those of you who haven't seen it, uh, I'll just give a real quick rundown. The plot is pretty simple, and because we'll be jumping around, I'm sure, and talking about different elements. But the crux of it is Anthony Hopkins is a magician. He's an apprentice for an older magician who appears to be dying in the early scenes that uh, the guy appears to be sick. Hopkins has been taking over and he goes out on stage one night, like his first night out and nobody cares. Nobody gives a shit when he's doing everything, but he's doing a good job. It's just, he's a magician and he's stage magician. Just he's in some random club and he kind of freaks out on people. And you see that early evidence of where he ends up later in the movie of the kind of temper and problems that he has. But yeah, he's essentially, a struggling artist, struggling magician. We come back a year later. Burgess Meredith is his agent. Burgess Meredith is trying to get him on TV. He has a TV executive there who is like, oh, a magician? I can't sell that. And then Anthony Hopkins comes out, and he is actually a magician slash ventriloquist, which this is one bit I felt was pretty dated, where the TV guy's like, a ventriloquist? I can sell that. (laughs) I'm like... (laughs) Uh, I mean, I guess you do have that, whatever that guy that was on Comedy Central all the time. So you have that guy, but other than him, I would say in the last 30 years, there's not a whole lot of real famous ventriloquists. But that exact scene played out at some point in the 90s with Comedy Central execs. That's the thing. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Another comedian? Oh, ventriloquist comedian. The missing ingredient is racism. That's what's missing. (laughs) Now we can sell it. So, uh, so yeah, so Hopkins is going to get some kind of uh, TV deal, like an initial pilot deal, but they want him to submit to a health exam, which would include a psychological exam. And he does not write state it, but you, as an audience, obviously get indications that he doesn't want that. And Burgess Meredith is this old-timey agent. He's done a hundred of these deals. He knows that this can all work out really well. And so he's seen this kid who is putting up a blockade on something that he shouldn't, that's like, you're, you're throwing away your future. So they have an argument. Hopkins flees, ends up going to, I, I guess he, I don't How does he find the, and Margaret, his, his old, it's his hometown. It's his hometown. It's his hometown. It's like he like, she's like, but her parents, her parents oh, own that place. Okay. Yeah, he says at one point yeah. to her or to Fats, I don't remember, but he, he brings up that he wasn't actually expecting to find her there. Okay. He would ask about her, and she was like, oh, they they gave the place to me. They're, they're down in Florida. Yeah. Okay, so, yeah. yeah, he's checking out some things from his hometown, ends up at the home of, like, an old high school crush, and then they he stays there for a period of a few days, and they strike up a romance and she has a husband who's been out of town for a day or so, and then there's some conflict in the back half. So the first half essentially plays more or less like a melodrama. I mean, a lot of horror movies will do a first half of a build where it's setting the pieces in place, but still a lot of horror movies will have things that are eerie or creepy or whatever. So that's why I would argue this movie is only somewhat a horror movie or 
horror thriller. Tim's comment that it plays like a Lifetime movie, uh, that's kind of true. The first mm-hmm. the first half largely does. The second half definitely gets into more of a thriller. It's not, you know, it's not outright horror. There's no gore. Nothing's going way out there. So it's very low level in terms of the scares, but there are some things that are there and it, you know, it's, it's more of a psychological horror than anything. So that's essentially the crux of what this movie is. And then we'll dig into more of where it goes. Before we get into what actually happens in the movie, I, like I said, I I like I was making shit up. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. I saw a different movie. I don't know what you're talking about. No. I want to bring up the movie I started projecting in my mind okay. because again, I went into this completely cold. So yeah. I knew it was supposed to be a horror thriller. It's called magic. He starts talking to this dummy and we don't necessarily know where the dummy comes from. Cause like Nate mentioned, there's a bunch of time jumps. Mm-hmm. So I kept waiting for there to, for a shoe to drop where something like fats, being revealed to be to actually be alive would happen or other or other actual magic would occur well they definitely toy with that idea yeah, it does I, I, I did also expect it at some point but then also there's a specific when when he the first night that he has dinner with um i can't remember the character's name the woman the crush penny peggy peggy, peggy. peggy. the first night he has dinner with peggy and they're talking and she starts talking about Duke, the husband. Like he asks how the marriage is, and she, you know, she's very is giving off a lot of clear signals that their marriage is not great. But then she has a line where he asks how they are, and she says, "We seem to separate what seems like every full moon." And then he asks where he is. He's on a small business trip, and so my mind goes, "Holy shit! Is there going to be a werewolf in this movie? <laughs> like, is that where this right?" Is going? <laughs> I, I and was, that, and then I, I started waiting for that to happen, which it obviously doesn't. But I was like, I was constantly on the lookout for weird things like that to happen because I didn't know what else to expect in this movie. I I was thinking that at any moment it would reveal that the baby, well, that baby, <laughs> sorry, the, <laughs> I, you know that's why you want me on for kids, right? But no, the uh, the dummy was going to be a demon of some sort, and, and I was simultaneously like looking forward to it and loathing that uh, that might happen at the same time. Like I was like, do I want that to happen? But I yeah. think I would hate it if it did. Yeah, because because the whole thing about how he a year passes and suddenly he's successful makes you right. think he made a deal with the devil or something. And that's why mm-hmm. there's something up with this dummy. That's magic, but right, it, it's a year past. And then 28 weeks of him being on stage with that. So it's like all this stuff yeah. happened really quickly. And you're like, it does seem like, yeah. And there's, well, there's, there's that time jump. And then the dummy comes out of nowhere. Fats comes out of nowhere. We never actually see him acquire it. And the Merlin guy from the very beginning of the movie that he's talking to in that very first scene, who is on death's door, you know, he's very sick. He's lying on the couch. Mm-hmm. So I was, I started thinking, is that, did that guy get reincarnated into the dummy? Right. Okay. Yeah. The movie, Eric mentioned that it plays with it, the possibility that Fats is alive. And there's actually a couple, a couple moments other than the, the really obvious one. So, I'll bring up the obvious one first. So obviously going to be getting into some spoiler territories here, but I mean, you did do the synopsis already. So I think we're past spoiler. Yeah, but I, I feel like nothing, nothing I've conveyed so far has, 
has spoiled much. But yeah, so essentially Hopkins has the rival, which is the woman's husband, and some issues have come up. Uh, another dead body, which you might talk about a little bit later, is on the pro uh, property. They have discovered it. It was because of Hopkins. And there's a point where the husband goes into Corky's room that he's renting and he discovers some evidence while he's in there that ties back to the body that has been found. And then Fats is sitting there on a chair and the guy is going over toward him. And this is up to this point, the movie could easily take a turn and this could be Fats is alive. And this is a moment where, and then the dummy starts stabbing the guy. Like you actually see a knife well, in. Before that, the they room. actually, they while he's looking in the mirror, you see the dummy move on its own yeah. before he even turns around to go see the dummy. So the, the dummy actually moves because Anthony oh, Hopkins is Okay. Yeah. But I you actually I see that in the that. background. I didn't notice that. I didn't, I didn't pick up that one, but there are a couple other parts, and it makes me question how much they were intending because I read some stuff about it. But so the dummy, you actually see the dummy's hand with like a knife wedged in it or something uh, ends mm -hmm. up being how it must have been. And he's stabbing this guy, and the guy, I think, believes that the dummy is coming to life. The audience is meant to believe that the dummy is alive. And then it's revealed. The way it was shot is the dummy's, like, in front of some kind of weird curtained-off area. Right. And then that Hopkins was behind it and was hiding because the guy, he knew the guy would probably be snooping in his room. And then just decided, oh, I'll kill him with my dummy. But he also, he's having a psychological break where the dummy is sort of part of him. So it, it does make sense, but that's a move. That's a point where the movie explicitly tries to get you to think fats is alive, but there are a couple other moments that I noticed. Um, there's one that this is like IMDB stuff. So I don't know if, if for sure this is what the director said, but according to that, there was one that they commented on and one that I noticed that they didn't. So there's a point when Corky and Fats first get to the hotel and Corky is kind of arguing or discussing with Fats and they're going back and forth and Corky goes into the bathroom and when he comes back out, Fats's eye line is different from when he left. Like you saw how Fats was kind of looking like straight ahead and then later Fats is like, Fats' eyes actually move. They're able to be controlled in the back of his, you know, like a dummy. But his eyes now, instead of being straight straight ahead, are like turned to like the left or whatever so that they would be like looking at Corky's eyes. So it was just a really subtle thing that might have been intentional, might have to throw you off or might have been unintentional based on how they were staging it in the day. It's hard to tell. But Continuity error. It, it's possible. But there's another one, though, that I feel that the movie is trying to... We can talk about whether this is a good idea or whether it's effective, but the the obvious answer is that Corky is having a psychological break and that Fats is like just a secondary personality that he's developed. Mm -hmm. And that's, that's I mean, that's the, the real answer that's almost certainly what's intended. But with that moment and then with the kind of playing around with the stabbing moment, there's another one that's really explicit that if you read the trivia, it says, oh, well, this was a mistake. But then I watched the scene very closely, and it's hard for me to understand how it's a mistake. So 
after he's killed people, but before the very end, he's having an argument with Fats. Fats is sitting on the couch. Corky has been holding him up to this point and turning his head and talking. And so his, his eyes are moving and he's blinking and his mouth's moving and all that kind of stuff. But Corky sits him down. He gets up off the couch and he's like pacing the room and still talking to Fats. He sits Fats down. Fats blinks. And this is the part on the trivia page where they say, oh, well, according to the director, we noticed that, but we liked the shot too much and it was just a mistake. So we left it in and figured anyone wouldn't notice. And I'm like, okay. But if you watch that section, what actually happens is Corky blinks, or sorry, Fats blinks. His eyes move, like not a ton, but they shift like, like he's turning to look at something. His head slightly moves and he blinks again. There's like a sequence of things that happen that to me is not, oh, we bumped a button. Now, the question then is like, I don't know if Hopkins was always controlling the puppet or in that scene with the couch, if you had somebody's hand up underneath in the couch. But still, it's like it's on camera for a good while and you didn't need to keep that on. So I'm wondering if intentionally they were again, this is after they had the stabbing sequence And then they reveal, oh, it was just Hopkins all along. So I wonder if the movie's trying to keep that thread going of uncertainty of is Fat some kind of evil entity or is he, we've raised the possibility of like a demon or the devil or he sold his soul or whatever. I just, it doesn't seem accidental to me. I would point to another scene where that makes it a possibility is, is the sex scene where they have a shot of the dummy like sitting there as if he's supposed to be feeling something about what's going on. What a sicko. <laughs> Aroused. Yeah. Or, or So, like, why else would you show that shot? And then, you know, later on the movie, it, it feels like Fats is, like, afraid that Corky's going to leave him behind when he right. gets with, gets his woman, because that's what he really wants. He doesn't really want the fame and success. He just wants to be with his woman. So, yeah, I mean, maybe it could be a, a, a thing where, yeah, the, the dummy doesn't, want to let go of this connection that the two of them have because it needs it. Well, my, I think both of those things can exist. The fact that I think both things can exist that the, there are moments where the dummy, we see the dummy moving and acting on its own and it's not just an accident, but it's still meant to be that it's all Anthony Hopkins, uh, Corky's in his head, because I think what the movie is very clearly taking Corky's point of view. He is the character that we watch everything unfold through. So I, the way I was reading stuff like that, where it was more ambiguous is in Corky's mind, Corky treats fats as if fats is an actual person as someone who's alive. So when we see those instances where Corky's eyes have shifted or there's some kind of movement on its own, to me, that was a manifestation of Corky thinks Fats is alive, so the movie is presenting Fats at least somewhat through Corky's lens. So, like to a us. like a Tyler Durden type situation, then. Kind yeah. of, yeah. yeah. Well, and I I also think that some of those scenes where he's ta- like, where he's obviously talking to himself as as uh, as, as Fats and, and Corky, where maybe, maybe he's not even mouthing stuff at some point. Maybe this is in his mind sure. talking to him rather than mm-hmm. actually doing the. 
But I, I also found myself in those scenes thinking, and this is where I'm going to break your rule about not getting us in trouble later on in life. Are all ventriloquists like this, having conversations with their dummies yes, by themselves? I, I agree. I, I agree with me. I don't, I don't know if, uh, <laughs> if a ventriloquist union is going to be coming for our heads. So I think we're probably okay. Okay. I just, you know, I want to throw the disclaimer out. One other one I forgot because I had, a, I had notes on this, but there is one other bit in terms of playing with that tension of is it alive or is it not? Because I was once I saw that they had the eye blinking thing as a possibility, I was then paying attention to any time. Cause I didn't know when it happened. So I was paying attention to any time Fats is on screen uh, pretty closely. But when Ben green, who is Burgess Meredith's, the gang green uh, is his nickname, but he's the agent character. When he shows up, basically, as I had said, Corky flees, he pays off a cabbie to not tell anyone that he took him there and, it's implied that Ben Green was able to pay off the cabbie more to find out where he's at. So he's able to track him down and he shows up and Corky's in a, in the middle of a very intense argument with fats, i.e. himself. And Ben Green is unaware of any of these psychological, seemingly psychological issues. And so it's sort it's a, it's, it's one of the better scenes of the movie. It's, it's, there's a pretty solid gut punch and seeing these two really good actors play off of each other. But in that moment, Corky is literally like shaking fats and they're kind of spinning around. But if you watch the sequence of how it plays, Corky is not facing the door when Ben appears. Fats is the one who's looking toward the door and Fats's head is the one that reacts. Like he, he says like, ah, or something mm. like that. I think mean, I saw it. Now, I remember now you that could, too. You could imply that Ben was, you could infer Ben was already there and Corky saw him in the midst of spinning and he just through his mind decided Fats is going to see this, not me. Yeah. Like, but as far right. as the film goes, the one who reacts is Fats and not Corky. Corky, Corky yeah. only reacts after Fats reacts and then Corky turns his head and sees him. So, Again, it's a movie playing with it, but I think it's an interesting, you know, kind of neat little device. Yeah, I, I would agree. Um, and uh, what a turn for the character of Gang Green from being this cutthroat agent to all of a sudden being someone, a caring pro, like this is a pro-agent message, like caring, yeah. loving agent, like, let me fix you. Yeah, yeah, uh, that, is, that is when you find out he actually does care about him and it's not just... Yeah. Because there are points in the movie where, you know, it's early on and you think, well, can we trust this guy? Is he going to, like, betray him at some point? It's always a possibility. But then you see that he actually, like, sees that this is the man that needs help and, like, wants to help him. He's not, like, going to just ditch him. Um, And then when he sits down to say, you got to make him shut up for five minutes. And then that's, like, also a great moment. I think that was, hands down, the best part of the movie was that whole sequence. And then Mm -hmm. the shut Fats up for five minutes and just watching Corky's complete inability to do it. Oh, and squirming. It, it, it yeah. was really well acted. And the way it was directed, too, I think is really well done, too. We haven't talked to, uh, about the director, but this is Richard Attenborough. Who, he spared no expense. Yes, this is... Uh, <laughs> most of you will be familiar with Richard Attenborough because he was John Hammond in the first two Jurassic Park films. And he was a pretty notable actor in his own right. Was in a lot of uh, British actor, in a lot of British movies, and then crossed over into some American films, especially as he got older. But he did direct a number of features throughout his career. He did Gandhi, and he did a few other big ones. Let me see. A Bridge Too Far, uh, Bridge Too Far, 
and he did Chaplin, he did I think. Chaplin, and he did a chorus line, and he did a number of mm. other ones that uh, I haven't seen. I don't know how necessarily big they were, but I mean, Gandhi was nominated for and won one, one best, best picture, picture nominated yeah. for a bunch of Oscars. You know, so is Chaplin, wasn't it? I know Robert Downey Jr. was Downey nominated. Jr. Yeah, I mean, his his movies got nominated a good deal. You know, he wasn't like the flashiest director in the world. And that's one aspect we could talk about here in a second, the British sensibilities on this. But that scene, essentially, you know, Burgess Meredith sees that Anthony Hopkins is struggling, having a psychological break. As Eric said, he wants him to get the dummy to shut up for five minutes. And it's just this great bit of acting, just very small, quiet, closed acting between these great actors just sitting in a room. But I think Richard Attenborough does a great job because when Meredith says, make facts shut up for five minutes, it just, the way it's presented is just this gut punch of like, mm-hmm. the day yeah. he knows how impactful that moment is. And so he gives mm-hmm. it this weight and then Hopkins reacts with just this stunned, like, oh, fuck, I can't do that. And yeah. so it works super well. But, I, but I'm but i curious, uh, since we've gone a little into the directing now, what we think of the direction overall and also him as him as a as a British director, because for me, I feel like there's definite British sensibilities at play because it's a very quiet movie other than Hopkins going nuts at points. The majority of the movie's pretty small, pretty quiet. It feels like a British drama to me most of the time. Yeah, yeah, I would say so. And well and, and kind of still staying focused on this area of the movie, I mentioned and this is where I think and I I don't know how much of this would necessarily be a result of the directing per se but i mentioned before about tonal whiplash and just the movie like a kind of sense of insanity with the movie and i think one of the where it was most clear to me is we're talking about the shut up for five minutes scene and it's a fantastic sequence you know it's some because uh the manager even brings up it's it's something easy anyone should be able to do it but the movie treats it with the appropriate stakes as far as the character would treat it. It is just an incredibly tense piece of work for that kind of, uh, of a sequence, but then it's followed with, I thought one of the most ridiculous murder scenes I've ever seen where Corky is just like, ah, and just like, you see him like swinging the dummy at the manager's head and the way it's shot and presented, I was laughing and it's not, it's not played for laughs. It's not, it's clearly not supposed to be funny, but again, that's like the crazy kind of bonkersness of this movie where it just really leans into that kind of stuff in the midst of what would be a small, more of a drama. It still finds these really weird ways where you're just like, what the fuck is going on? I I mean, during the, I'm going to go back to that five minutes, uh, the five minute scene again. Uh, I, I don't know if this was it, maybe it was just as well done. Uh, the directing was well done. The when he's asking for the time, I felt like it was longer than thirty seconds when he yeah. was saying, "Oh, it's only thirty seconds." I felt like it was longer than a minute, and I didn't stop the movie and like peg the time and be like, "All right, I'm really going to time this based on what he's saying." Is it really thirty seconds? Is it really a minute? But it it sure as hell felt like a lot longer than that. And so whether it was really longer and it was like really a minute for those thirty seconds. It was done well enough that I'm like, 
it was agonizing. It was agonizing to see it, that. Yeah, so. it, it it hangs out there. I know when he hit at one point he asks, and it was like he says it's a minute forty five, I think. And and prior to that, the last time he had asked, it was like coming up on a minute. And I was sitting there yeah. as an that was one where I was like, there was no way it was more than forty five seconds right now. Like so, it's one of those things right. where it's like a movie's like they shot it a certain way, and they're trying to get a, the right beats to play. So yeah, the actual right. like, timing of things, I don't know if that's uh, super great or you know. Uh, super on point, but yeah, it, I, I think it's very effective. He murders him with the dummy. Yes. Yeah. And, and, and yeah, like. For, but then he doesn't actually. He has to. He has to finish the job later. That, that's fair. It's not really the murder because the guy survives, but it's still. It was still just a really ridiculous turn, considering how how tense and suspenseful the scene that came before was to go from that to. Ah, and like fast oh, yeah. face just weird. swinging at you from the screen. <laughs> I think, yeah, I, the the dummy bit. I didn't laugh, but I would agree that it's it probably could be played better. But I think the drowning one, where so essentially after he tries mm-hmm. to kill the agent, it, it, it he seems to kill him, and then he's going to drag his body out into the middle of this lake and like put stones in his pocket and so just like leave him down there and the agent wakes up in the midst of this knows what's happening and starts attacking Corky so that he doesn't die and it plays pretty well uh, I mean I think it's a pretty effective and kind of you know in, in a thriller context it's not outright horrific but I think that murder plays pretty well well, I think it's interesting that the only time he struggles in a, in a killing or an attempted killing is when he's not having the dummy do it. You know, if that was the only time moment, yeah. moment of struggle between two characters is where he's having to do it himself. And so he's struggling with the agent versus the dummy pretty much hit, clubbing him or knifing the guy without much of a struggle at all. One other bit that I thought was pretty interesting was near the end. So Corky has killed his uh, agent Ben Green he eventually kills the husband of the woman that he's having an affair with essentially that he's interested in and eventually the dummy gets jealous and wants him to kill her that's kind of where we're headed in the climax and we can talk a little bit more about that coming up but there's one shot that I thought was particularly well done in a horror context Fats and Corky I think think throughout the whole movie have been dressed differently most for, for most yeah. of it and then near the end Corky's outfit occasionally changes it's never done as a big showy thing but occasionally I think he wears something different near the end though Fats and Corky are wearing identical clothing which obviously has you know very explicit connotations because of their psychological state but there's a really good shot when he, when Corky goes to visit, we said Peggy, right? Peggy. Peggy Ann Snow, I think. He goes to visit yep. her. He's trying to get her to come out of her bedroom, presumably to, so that they can leave together. That's kind of the implication of what he tells her. But then we find out that, no, he's actually waiting outside her door to kill her. That's what how the movie presents it. But he's, I don't know, maybe... 10 feet away and he's behind a wall. But there's this really good shot where the camera starts at his feet and it comes up his body and he's wearing the same clothes that Fats was wearing in the previous couple scenes. 
and Hopkins is just standing there, just eyes straight ahead, and he's got this like goofy looking like I don't know slick down bowl cut going on, and he's got a knife like just clutched right up to his chest, and I feel like they are trying to make him look like a ventriloquist dummy in that moment. I would agree. I think the way mm-hmm. it's shot and how rigid and stiff he is. And then I rewound it. Cause I wanted to see, are there any details I'm not picking up? But at one point while he's standing there, his eyes just flick over to the side, like quickly, not like how you hmm. would, you know, normally you're going to look at something like it just goes from straight left the way that we, a lot of times see fats do it when he's moving fats eyes right. and they zip left, right, center, or whatever. So I thought that was just a really cool horror movie shot for the movie. Well, and, and he was talking in Fat's voice. Yeah. He wasn't using his voice the entire time he was at the at the door and trying to get it to come out. Mm-hmm. So I, I would say, in a sense, Fats took over at that point. Yeah. And I think that's what I was trying to say. And I think that was another good place where they were playing with the idea of whether or not Fats might actually be alive. Because like you said, he's... Corky is dressed like the dummy at that point. So the way the shot goes where it's moving backwards down the hall, and then there's that wall where Corky's standing behind. So you just see the feet and the pants. So as it's moving up, there's there's a brief moment where I was thinking, is that Fats? Like, is he just walking around now? Like, are we in straight Night of the Living Dummy territory? Interesting you bring that one up. Uh, This is some IMDb trivia. uh, So, you know, chalk it up, take it with whatever grain of salt you want. But according to that, this movie was R.L. Stein's inspiration for Night of the Living. Oh, and saying how the TV version, when they did Slappy's voice, was modeled after Fats's voice in this, which I could definitely, I mean, maybe we're just so used to like, man, you know, ventriloquist dummy, just like that kind of goopy double right but yes. but it could be that we're used to that because like this movie i mean this movie wasn't huge it uh it was a smaller success at the time and there have been a number of other you know killer ventriloquist dummies or split psychological chucky. ones what's that nate i just said chucky yeah. but i know that's not ventriloquist yeah a lot of killer doll movies but yeah apparently that's uh the origin when it first started and they first introduced fats i couldn't help wondering if it was an inspiration for Gabo. On the <laughs> Gabo, but I don't know. Gabo, Gabo. He'll tell us what to do. <laughs> so with when we're talking about the ventriloquist dummy and and all of that, kind of going back to what Nate was talking about, where he, he mentioned, do all ventriloquists act like this? I think the most the most unbelievable part of the movie for me, and I get that ventriloquism as a skill is very impressive and throwing your voice is, is, is something that takes a lot of work. And I don't want to take that away from people who actually have mastered that skill, but ventriloquist dummies are creepy as fuck. And it just, I, I, there is no way in reality where if what is essentially your first date with someone and they pull out a ventriloquist dummy (laughs) that your reaction is, Oh my God, I love it. No, the reaction is, um, well, but okay. he's, well, she knew she knew him from the past, though. So this isn't like a a, a blind. She also knew him from television at that yeah, point. Yeah, she she knew him from the past. She knew him from the past, and she's seen him on TV. So he's bit he's now become semi famous. So that dummy is not just a dummy. That dummy is hey, this guy's got some money. 
and I know him, yeah. and I and my marriage is falling apart. So yeah, so I can pretend for a minute. <laughs> I mean, Jeff Dunn's also famous, but I feel like if he popped up in real life, your reaction would be, uh, uh, I don't know. I I I think it's. So even though the fir- we were talking about the first half of the movie, there isn't a lot of outright scary, creepy stuff, and it's more the build. I would argue that just the fact that there's a ventriloquist dummy counts as horror to a degree. I guess we would think that because we understand ventriloquist dummies as being the subject of a lot of horror, but I think maybe back then it really wasn't, so... Yeah, that's fair. Prior, yeah, that's fair. Uh, prior to this movie, I mean, there are a few. There's a there's a Twilight Zone episode where like a dummy and the ventriloquist switch places is the big capper at the end. Mm-hmm. And then there's a a British movie called Dead of Night that operates on a similar premise. I can't remember if the dummy is alive in that or if it's also like a psychological break. And we also, but yeah, since then we've had Night of the Living Dummy, like Slappy kind of stuff. Gabo played with that from the Simpsons. Yeah. There's Tales from the Crypt had an episode where there was a, um, Oh, it was such a creepy episode too. It was a, <laughs> it was a dummy, but spoiler alert. It was actually the uh, brother. Oh, uh, it, the, was, it was like a, the, the twin brother. a vestigial twin. Yep. Oh, and then there's also that dead, dead silence. silence. Yeah. Dead silence. Not the best horror movie, but still creepy, creepy dummy. I think what I'm trying to say is I'm prejudiced against ventriloquist dummies. No, no, that's fair. Yeah. I found myself at the beginning when they were in with Merlin, when we were in with Merlin, when he was dying, I was looking every, every piece in the background and I saw a a, a dumb, I saw a doll, maybe, maybe not a dummy. And I was like, oh, that's it. That's the one. And, and then it ended up not being any of those. And I was actually kind of disappointed because they were creepier in in the background. So, (laughs) So yeah, what other, what are some stray thoughts, other things? Uh, I've got a couple things I wanted to bring up, but any other aspects of the movie you want to dig into? The only thing that popped into my head, this is kind of stupid, but uh, when I was looking up like the careers of, of Anthony Hopkins and like, you know, cause it was surprising me that like he, he was in this, so he's established now, but it took till like 91 and Silence of the Lambs to kind of like get famous in America. And I'm wondering like why you know, he was never get, kind of given those like leading roles in the eighties. Um, maybe because he doesn't really look like a leading man looking at like Attenborough's career. And like, he was John Hammond. And I was like, uh, you know, maybe uh, Hopkins could have played John Hammond. But then I was like, no, because then you'd get the sense that he like let the dinosaurs loose on purpose just because of how he is. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> how did you do this? I'll show you. <laughs> <laughs> Anthony Hopkins as John Hammond, though, probably would be closer to the John Hammond in the book. I was going to say that, oh, yeah. Because yeah. in the book, oh, yes. like, I love what Spielberg did with Hammond in... We're, we're going to go off on the rails to talk about Jurassic Park for a little while now. But <laughs> I love what Spielberg did with Hammond. I mean, I think, I think Richard Attenborough, I think we would all agree, did a fantastic job. He's this great kind of avuncular, grandpa-ish Walt Disney figure. And he does a great job. But yeah, in the book... He's, I mean, he's meant to be kind of Dr. Moreau. He's meant to be a modern mad scientist that he's playing in this domain that he shouldn't. And he ends up dying because of it. The dinosaurs kill him. Mm -hmm. The only part of the movie in Jurassic Park that I always felt was a little false. I don't mind that they changed him and made him the grandpa version, but his kid, his grandkids have been like out there and 
under threat from the dinosaurs, specifically the velociraptors, which we all know can just murder everyone at a moment's notice. They've all been in danger for the last several hours of the movie. He knows how dangerous the park is. He knows all the dinosaurs are loose. And then you get to that moment near the end where Alan Grant is like shooting at the velociraptors and uh, Hammond can hear him through the the walkie-talkie that the gunfire's going, and he says, don't! And it's like, do you want them to eat your grandkids? They're in the same room. Is that what he says? I've never... I've never never taken that as him being against him shooting the dinosaurs. I always took that as him being afraid for his grandkids. Yeah, I always read that as him being being scared. Wait, we're we're all talking about each other. We're not going to hear... What's Eric? No, I was saying I agree with you. That's that's how I took that scene. My my interpretation has always been don't kill them. Like that he still values the animals, that he still think No, because up to that point he recognizes how dangerous they are. He obviously wants people to be safe, but I at no point does he ever advocate, well, we need to wipe them out. And actually when it gets brought up by uh Muldoon of the Lysine contingency, he shoots it down. And so I, yeah, my interpretation, well, if he's saying don't, is he talking to the velociraptors, Nate? <laughs> is he telling them don't eat? But does he think he's, they he's should listen to commands? That his grandchildren are about to die. He's like, no, don't. But I mean, reality is we're now way off. We are. We're but I'm amazed. <laughs> Nate's an actual father. So I think we should go with what he says, which just by coincidence is also my position as well. Right. So, I agree. I yeah. agree. Tim and I are yes, my mistake. John Hammond was talking to the Velociraptors in that scene, <laughs> begging with them to not eat his grandchildren. My mistake, everyone. Uh, anyway. Um, yeah. That reminds me of when Corky was fighting a Velociraptor in Magic. You know, I was just saying that dabbling in places we shouldn't go, I'm thinking ventriloquism is one of those places. <laughs> and again, I'm sorry that I'm going to turn the your huge ventriloquism fans against you on this podcast, but this is where no ben- man should go is ventriloquism. Another couple aspects I think are worth bringing up is uh, the music. It's by Jerry Goldsmith, who had a very lengthy career, did a ton of movies. Most people would probably be most familiar with him from... He did both Gremlin soundtracks. If we're talking horror, he did the amazing Rudy score. Yeah. Uh, he did a ton of things. I think this is a very effective horror score. I think it has some really nice moments. And then when it's not being horror, it's, it's you know kind of played as a drama score. And I think it works. I do particularly like the, the harmonica. Yeah. And it's not even like a tune. It's just like someone breathing in and out into a harmonica. <laughs> just like, it's really weird. Yeah, the calming music with that jumping into it yeah Yeah. the other notable thing uh we haven't touched on i don't know if anyone saw this uh in looking things up but tim was kind of surprised you know he he didn't know much about this movie and kind of surprised at how it operates but it's actually it's based on a book i read it years ago and i'm from my memory it's pretty faithful but it's based on a book and then the screenplay was written by that same author william goldman and william goldman is very famous uh he's dead now but a very famous novelist and screenwriter and he had done butch casting the sundance kid he did all the president's men he did marathon man and the one that most people are familiar with because they have watched it five thousand times since the age of childhood the princess bride he wrote both the original book and the screenplay for the princess bride so this movie while being 
you know, definitely a smaller one for Anthony Hopkins, a smaller one in terms of a horror movie. It's not something that I think tons of people have seen. It does have some kind of impressive lineage going on and who's operating both in front of and behind the camera when you've got Anthony Hopkins in a young role, Anne Margaret Burgess Meredith, uh, Richard Attenborough behind the camera, and William Goldman writing. And Margaret, whose breasts belong in the Louvre, yes. as he says. Yes. Uh, you know, there were some right. really pretty good line. Yeah. <laughs> Going back to how Anthony Hopkins is kind of what holds this movie together, there were a number of dialogue choices where it was, it's not good dialogue, but somehow Anthony Hopkins makes it sound like passing normal. Mm-hmm. Because what the, what the version I was watching that that Litton sent me, it had uh, closed captioning, so I'm I'm watching the dialogue as it plays out, and there are a number of times where I'm reading, I'm like, oof, that is, that's not like phrases that I've never heard before. Like, what is it when he first goes to ask for Powell when he first gets to the bed and breakfast or whatever this place is, and he says no soap, like there's no soap. Mm. Her response is, I told you wouldn't like it. Do you want to leave? No, not soap soap like that. I mean, there's no soap. And I'm like, is no soap a phrase that I just don't know? Is that right, kind of... you're just not up on the upstate New York slang? So <laughs> Yeah, I, I was I was very confused by by some of the the phrase choices that were being made. And if I were reading this, if I were just reading it as a book or something, it would probably be really distracting and take me out. But hearing anthony hopkins just say all this it's just kind of like yeah sure well we have to i probably just don't know how it works i'd have to say we have to also have to remember this movie is nearly 50 years old so it's probably going to have some (laughs) phrasing and dialogue that's like a little odd to our ears but yeah i i caught that part i know there's like an old anti-joke of no soap radio type deal where it's something where you like you say it to somebody, you present it as though it's a joke to see if they'll laugh, kind of like a psychological thing of like if they'll just go along with you. It's not anything funny or interesting, but I've heard of that, but I've never heard of no soap as like a no dice or this isn't good right. kind of thing. I've never heard that as an exception. Gotcha. All right. Anything else? Anything else before we uh, close up? Yeah. Are there any, are there any, movies i know we talked about how after this you get a lot of night of living dummy and stuff like that but are there any movies and pieces of fiction featuring ventriloquist dummies where the ventriloquist is just well adjusted and a normal person or are they all some level of and again i'm talking specifically about within the world of fiction apologies to Linton's ventriloquist fan base and reality but in terms of pop culture and, and fiction, are there any examples of non-crazy psychotic ventriloquist slash ventriloquist dummies? Nothing comes to mind. <laughs> I think we'd have to do a deep dive in Google to figure that one out. I don't think anyone wants, yeah, maybe no one wants to write a story that glorifies ventriloquists. Yeah, one, one, we, didn't, one we didn't mention earlier, I, was, uh, I had it for a second and I lost it, but we were talking about how we've been conditioned over the years, even like since this movie uh, came out, of seeing a bunch of things where there's evil ventriloquist dummies or you know magical entity ventriloquist dummies. But another one is Batman, 
Batman the Animated Series. I knew you were going there. Yeah, Batman the Animated Series gonna... and the Ventriloquist. I don't know when that character emerged, but I'm guessing probably 70s or 80s. He's not he's not a real old Batman villain. So he would have been in the comics. I know he was in the comics at least as of the 80s. And then when they did Batman the Animated Series, he was a villain that appeared in a number of episodes. So anyone our age would have grown up seeing him from that, if not reading the comics. So yeah, we're all used to this as a very common trope. But to answer your question, Tim, I don't know. I don't know if there are. I don't know if I've ever seen a movie yeah, where, where an ventriloquist... I'm trying to think of like, yeah. Isn't that... Well, there's that... There's people a movie, that there's are... a movie called Dummy that has Mila Jovo, jo, Jovovich. And Jovovich, I yeah. think she might be dating someone who's like a ventriloquist. And I don't think there's anything evil. I think it's like a quirky comedy. Yeah, I'm not sure about that. The the closest I can think of is forgetting Sarah Marshall, but that's not ventriloquism. That's just regular puppetry. Yeah, puppet- so great. puppeteering is good because like Sherry Lewis, Mister Rogers, Jim Henson. Yeah, that's good. Ventriloquism bad. So right. We know that's the line. Bad. That's the line evil. in the sand. Evil. Yes. Evil. Either the dummy's evil or the person's messed up. Like one of the two. Like you can't. Yeah. Yeah, that's that's a fair point. I don't think anyone has ever tried to put it in a positive light. Yeah, I and I'm looking and I can't find anything. It's just list after list of the most of the scariest ventriloquist dummies. <laughs> so I mean, I, I'm thinking it's a consensus. It's yeah, ventriloquism so, is bad. There was even an episode of King of the Hill where Bobby took it up and it was considered something that Hank didn't want him to do. So it was like again, and then and then Dale was so terrified. To be fair, everything that Bobby wants to do in that show is something he doesn't want him to do. So. Exactly. So they were, they were, it was put in pop culture as this is something that a father would not want his and son to do. And as we all know, that boy ain't right. So, <laughs> But I just looked it up. Yeah, it's a 2002 movie, Dummy. I saw it years ago, but I don't really remember much of anything about it. But Mila Jovovich and Adrian Brody is the lead. And I think she's his girlfriend or who he's pursuing. And let's see. Steven finds he has a knack for ventriloquism. And let's see. Da, 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 da. Yeah. And she falls in love with him? <laughs> Steven discovers that he is able to overcome his social problems through his dummy and decides to try impressing and winning the heart of Lorena Fanchetti. So I guess you're going into some real fantasy territory there, uh, but not outright horror. <laughs> Wait, was, was, there, was there an additional sentence where it ends and then he murdered everyone? But... <laughs> So, uh, yeah, all right. Ventriloquism is uh, hated the world over, or at least in American and British culture. We have established that fact. In closing here for our first October Halloween spookening episode, would you recommend magic? Yeah. I think I would, yeah. I think it qualifies as kind of a hidden gem type of thing. I mean, if only for like an early Anthony Hopkins but it's also, I think, a pretty well done movie overall, even if it is slow at times. Uh, I, I, I'll be honest. Um, watch it for Anthony Hopkins. Other than that, in my opinion, I, I, I wasn't as, as up, I wasn't as happy with it. I guess. I mean, I'm, I'm more along the same lines. I, I don't think it's terrible, um, and I think there are some effective moments mm-hmm. that do where it does rely more on a typical horror suspense mood. Um, 
regardless of Anthony Hopkins, like that, the shut up for five minutes sequence, there are good stretches into this movie regardless, but overall it is, I would recommend it mostly for Anthony Hopkins and to watch him do his thing, especially pre everyone knowing who he was. Yeah. Yeah. I, uh, I, I'm not too different from you guys on it. Uh, like I said, I watched it, I think in high school, shortly after getting into science of the lambs and the rest of the Lecter movies. So I really do like his performance in it. I like seeing that early craziness. I mean, I, I've watched him in so many movies. I don't know that I've ever seen him give a bad or at least not a passable performance. They're almost always really good or fantastic. So I think this is a solid early performance. I think it's enjoyable. The music's good there. Burgess Meredith is good. And Margaret does a good job. She hasn't given a whole lot, but I think she does a good job. And yeah, it's got a couple effective thriller sequences and the shut up for five minutes scene is really good. But yeah, just being totally upfront, it's a bit slow. It's a bit dated. Its sensibilities aren't, you know, this is a scare a minute thrill ride. So just know what you're getting in for. But I would still recommend it. Yes. It isn't hard to watch. I think that's something that should be brought up as well. Because there, you know, we've talked about being slow and it's not necessarily the best, but there are plenty of movies that are slow and boring and it's, a drag to watch. I never felt, I never felt that this movie was a drag while I was watching it. Even when there were those slower stretches, I was still just the way the movie was operating. I was still drawn into what was going on and how this character was perceiving his situation, what he was going to do next. And this is kind of late to bring it up, but I thought of it when I was watching and I forgot to mention earlier and it might be because I'm rewatching Breaking Bad currently with my fiance, but there was an element of Walter White that I kind of saw in Quirky and that he, there's kind of that bubbling insecurity, which is much more plain for Quirky, but Walter White has it too. And he is like Walter White. He is just looking at solving the short-term problem regardless of the how it's going to ripple into worse future consequences. So it's just this escalation of bad decisions um, that are stemming from, at its core, a man's insecurity. I was, I was just going to ask, like, if, if they were to, like, remake this movie today, who would you cast as Corky and Cranston might be a good... Yeah, yeah. that way they can that. have a 70-year-old man they call kid this time. <laughs> well then you just have a, there again he's still got it just have a 90 year old manager and it's like, yeah, bring, yeah bring back hopkins as the manager <laughs> just uh switch up some roles all right so that is magic 1978's magic so we will be back next time for the next part of our spookening viewings and that will be with antrim the deadliest film ever made yeah so join us for that See ya.